This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, this one's a very important and significant question today. It has to do with the fact that Nova Scotia just became the first jurisdiction in North America uh, to make uh, organ donation a presumed approval. So it's called presumed consent. That means that they assume you are an organ donor unless you tell them you are not, which is, of course, the opposite of the system that we have. That is, you're not an organ donor until you actually, you know, fill it out online and say that, yes, I am an organ donor. So they're just saying they're going to assume this is the case for everybody uh, in Nova Scotia. And in 2020, it's also going to change in England as well, where they're going to become an opt-out or a deemed consent system as well. So clearly, this is something that is generating a lot of interest and discussion. So we're asking you for our question of the day today. Are you in favor of BC adopting this presumed consent formula for organ donation? Do you think this is a good idea? Do you say, yes, of course, this is a good idea? Or do you say no, that you'll, you know, you'll make this decision if you want to do this? Or are you not sure? So go online to Simisara980 or to at CKNW and cast your vote on this. You can also use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. Or you can drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. Hilda tweeted me to say, yes, it should be set up like the way government set up the speculation tax. Assume yes, unless they say no. That is true, right? It's always convenient for governments to use this when this kind of system when they want to. So why not use it for presumed organ donation as well? Is that something that you would support? Let me know. And again, email me on this, simi at cknw.com. It's going to be really interesting. We're going to be talking more about the Nova Scotia uh, situation. The Premier introduced that bill at the Nova Scotia House uh, Assembly, and instead of requiring forms that will be filled out you know, to donate organs, they're just going to presume you already are an organ donor, unless you have gone to the trouble to say you are not. It's very different from what we have now. Do you think that's a good idea? Let me know. Well, this is a big deal for young girls all over the province. Less than an hour ago, the provincial government announced they are going to require schools to provide free menstrual products in school washrooms by the end of this year. For girls, this means not having to worry anymore about, you know, stopping at your locker before going to the washroom or missing out on classes or extracurricular activities just because you didn't have enough pads or tampons with you. I mean, it, it was it's a stressful thing for a lot of young girls out there. It impacted their school experience. So we're going to talk about this program now and find out how this is going to work with the help of uh, Education Minister Rob Fleming, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Simi. So how is this going to work? Um, we're going to provide funding to all the school districts to be able to afford uh, coin-free dispenser machines in their washrooms. And uh, also going forward, uh, we'll just build into the funding the cost of this and treat it like any other uh, hygiene supply that is currently provided and allocated by the ministry to a school district. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm really, really pleased that we're the first province to be doing this in Canada. I'm, I'm really, really pleased that we're going to be, that this will be available immediately. But I, I do wonder why it wasn't done before, because as we got into the contours of the program, it's not a significant amount of money. It is incredibly important for student dignity. Uh, we do have research that shows that a lot of girls do have to miss uh, class time and extracurricular activities. So there, there has been um, 
there has been a, a sort of a detrimental effect on on uh, some kids' ability to learn equally to their peers. So there is long-term funding attached to this eventually. Yeah, and it's it as I said, it's 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 not a lot of money. It's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per per annum uh, on a you know I think our public school budget uh, this year is six billion dollars. So. It's just really uh, working with school districts, saying, "Look, this is a basic supply, like like many others that are provided free of charge in schools. That's the way it's going to be moving forward." Um, what we did find out too is that a lot of districts uh, provide uh, free menstrual products to students uh, already, uh, not perhaps in what we might call a stigma-free way. So that's part of the. Well, they have to ask order. for it, right? They, exactly, yeah. and um, you know, I, I have a daughter, and I don't think she'd particularly want to talk no. to the office staff or the yeah, principal exactly. about what's going on with her. But uh, uh, so we'll uh, we'll have that done discreetly through the washrooms. Only the student has to know what's going on with their body, and, and that's just the okay. way it's going to be. Uh, so I, as I was also wondering about, is BC the first province to do this? It is. Um, that's We have every, every indication that nobody else is, is doing this. Now, there are some provinces that undoubtedly have districts that may be doing it, but... Uh, but we're the first to uh, to have it available province wide, and with a diverse, you know, regional uh, province like ours, we felt it was important in the name of equity to have students, uh, no matter where they live in British Columbia, have the same access. Okay, so which schools, like what type of schools, will this be? Is it going to be in elementary schools? Is it just high schools? How is this going to work? The districts are going to determine that, but it's available for for all types of schools: middle schools, high schools, elementary schools. Okay, interesting. And what about post secondary? Are you leaving that alone for now? We're going to we're leaving that alone for now. I, I think they're probably taking stock of um, what uh, supplies are available there too. I know that uh, uh, there's, I, th- I believe there are certain student unions that provide that in, in their facilities, but uh, uh, you may see something there as well. Um, the other part of the announcement today, which was incredibly important, was from Minister Simpson, who is in a partnership with the United Way, going to provide this to a number of community serving agencies that work with vulnerable populations of uh, people living in poverty. Oh, that's the one through the United Way, right? That's right, yeah. Okay, you mentioned this as well, too, but I had the same question is, what did take us so long? Like, when you started talking about this with people, did that question come up? Um, Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's an incredibly short period of time for, say, the United Way's campaign this year, where they did a fantastic job working with media organizations like yourself and... uh, uh, in terms of getting you know the word out there, it's the year 2019. Um, I think this is probably the third year of that campaign. In fairness, but this was the biggest year in terms of the donation drive. And and then uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the New Westminster School District that just went ahead and did it. Uh, did, did it. Yeah. And uh, and so we started the conversation with them. We found out other districts um, have something similar to New West in place, and uh, that there was universal enthusiasm in every part of the province to to do that and we said look you know this isn't about the money we'll we'll make that available this is about uh, serving students better and uh, making sure that kids aren't having to miss class or having to miss sports or in any way having their participation uh reduced um and um and and, and so uh you know yeah. when we look at the parent organizations the BCTF uh, QPPC everybody that works in the school system they're all very supportive and you mentioned there was research that was done into this. What kind of an impact was it having not having these products available? I think on a national survey, uh, as I recall, and it was a survey of girls. Um, one in seven girls said that they'd experienced a, a level of reduced participation in school uh, because of a lack of access to 
alcohol-free or stigma-free menstrual products. You know, it, it was they, they would skip classes, go home, um, or uh, not arrive at school. So, I mean, that's pretty serious uh, if uh, students are having to forego uh, important learning lessons um, during their school schedule. Uh, you know, this is if, if if this can help, and I believe it will, uh, reduce. Uh, those kinds of experiences, then it's it's well worth it. Okay, so they have until the end of 2019, but you expect yeah. it to kind of happen a little more quickly than that? I think it'll happen a lot more quickly than that. Um, we, uh, we we will give you know people that sort of the outer edge of, of compliance, but the money is available now to purchase things. We're, we're going to do it um, centrally through the consortium we have that buys supplies for all 60 districts, so it'll be a bulk order, and the, the, the dispensers, for example, will be as cheap as we can get them. And uh, and then going forward, uh, it'll be just based in the uh, the funding will be based in the allocation that we regularly send out to school districts annually. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Simi. I'm so glad to hear about this one. This one made me happy on a Friday morning. Rob Fleming, the Minister of Education, talking about the announcement the provincial government made this morning. They're going to be requiring schools to provide free menstrual products for students in school washrooms by the end of this year. Well, this organ donation story has really become a hot topic today, and it's because of Nova Scotia. That province could soon adopt presumed consent for all organ donations. They'd become the first Canadian province to do so. And Premier Stephen McNeil introduced the bill in the Nova Scotia House of Assembly. The Human Organ and Tissue Donation Act presumes everyone to be a potential donor, allowing those who do not wish to be a donor to opt out. Nova Scotia will be the first jurisdiction in North America to have such legislation. So essentially it means the opposite of what the rest of us have now, and that is right now, if you want to be an organ donor, you have to tell them, I'm going to be an organ uh, donor. They're saying everybody is an organ donor unless you tell us you are not. So there's presumed consent for all Nova Scotians. The legislation to implement this have already been passed in other jurisdictions around the world. In fact, in 2020, the law for organ donation in England is going to change to become as well this deemed consent system. And that means that all adults in England will also be considered to have consented to be an organ donor when they die unless they have added their details to the NHS organ donor registry to say that they do not wish to donate their organs. So why is Nova Scotia doing this? We've had a lot of discussion. You're going to get your chance to weigh in as well. So joining us now is Dr. Stephen Bede, Medical Director for Nova Scotia's Organ Donation Program. Dr. Bede, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Can you give us an idea of what led to this decision by the government? Well, we've sort of dealt with donation numbers that are below what we would like them to be for some time. We're a small program, but we've had good numbers, just not good enough. So any way to improve the system is worth talking about. We had a conversation with the government some years ago about presumed consent, and I basically told the the government, I didn't think we were ready at that point because there's other higher priorities. For example, you know, having a donation culture within the critical care community that, that were something we had to focus on. So that was a conversation a few years ago, but the Premier specifically brought this back to our program in August and said, I'd really like this to happen. I think it's important to do what we can do. Is it possible? So we started a six-month conversation around how we would do that and whether we'd be able to, and here we are. We've It's driven by the Premier's interest, but it's possible because 
the program supports this kind of an intervention to help the patients in Nova Scotia to get better health care. And what was the organ donation rate uh, when this all when this discussion all started? We had uh, about 20 donors per million, roughly. For the last decade, we've been roughly 20 donors per million, which is pretty well the highest rate in the country until the last few years when several provinces have, including BC, have started to be much more successful. And as they were getting more successful, our numbers actually dropped. And so we wanted to improve our system. Right. So do you know why that was? Like, was it just lack of awareness, do you think? Were people not thinking about it? Why our numbers dropped? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it was it was that we know that there's interventions that are being successful that we had not been able to bring on board. For example, we had critical care focused on donation within Halifax, but we hadn't been able to support that more broadly in, in the province. We had some coordinators, but we couldn't truly support the entire province. And uh, there are things like that that, that we thought led to a drop in our donation at the same time that provinces who were investing in those things were seeing real success. So we wanted to get presumed consent legislation as as part of a, a process to move forward. But in order to be able to bring the legislation on board, we have a commitment to essentially reboot the whole donation program that will include things like donation physicians and those coordinators we talked about. Right. So what what do you think this will do, Dr. Bede, like for the waiting list for somebody who's been waiting for a transplant? Well, we're hoping that we will be as successful as some other jurisdictions and we'd increase our, our donation rate by hopefully somewhere in the 30% range. That will definitely increase the number of organs available for transplant and we will be able to meet the needs of, of quite a few more Atlantic Canadians if we do this. What, do you think that would mean and the end of a waiting list? I wish that were true. Uh, it won't be. The number of people who are on the wait list is still substantial and that's why even if we had dramatically higher numbers as a country comparable to say Spain, we'd still have wait lists. But I'd like to think that they would be shorter and uh, and, and we will work towards that goal. But getting rid of a wait list completely is a wonderful objective, but not realistic in the short term. When you do look around the world, and you mentioned Spain there, is there a jurisdiction or a country where you go, they've got it right, they're doing this right? Well, Spain is the country everyone turns to, but interestingly, they've taken that sort of Spanish model, if you will, to some other countries. And Croatia, interestingly enough, has had numbers even better than Spain. And that is a small, poor country, but they've embraced the the strategies used within Spain, amongst other things, and they've seen real, real success. So uh, we've got other countries we can learn from, and we're trying to. Right. What What is it that Croatia does? What is it that Spain does that's so effective? Well, one of the key things is that they have uh, donation specialists, if you will, that are critical care trained, and they're in virtually every hospital in the in the country, so that you have people with expertise in every place, and the process of, of donation, if you will, becomes normalized. 
everybody in the system knows about it, thinks about it, and most vast majority support it. In Canada, that wouldn't be true. There are lots of hospitals where the potential donor uh, isn't isn't dealt with by the healthcare teams very often. So we have healthcare teams that are not familiar with the issue, right. haven't dealt with it very much, and they're uncommon events. So potential donors get missed. What has the feedback been like on this, Doctor B? Like, is everybody on board with this? <laughs> no, they are not, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's not a surprise. We knew there would be some people that would raise concerns, and and we completely respect the fact that that some people would be a, a little bit uneasy about what they perceive to be, you know, government controlling their body. My response would be that, that that's absolutely not the intention. This is not government overreach. This is a an attempt to support an opinion that most Nova Scotians actually support to improve the health care for Nova Scotians and also to respect the fact that some people will have a different opinion. And so we're going to develop an opt-out registration tool. So anyone that doesn't agree with this will have the chance to register that they do not want this to happen to them. And we will definitely be respecting that and we will be talking to families just to confirm things so if they have a different opinion we we will hear their voice but overall it has been very positive but there is a percent that that have raised concerns so will it be very easy for people to opt out we are going to make it a point to make it culturally sensitive user friendly very, very efficient from a time perspective and available across the whole province. It's very important that we don't just have a tool, we have a tool that, that works. So, yes, absolutely. So what is the timeline like for this then, Dr. Bede? When do you think this might all be put into place? We're going to work hard to have it in roughly a year, but it may take up to 18 months because we do have some work to do before it becomes proclaimed. Okay, so you st- and by then, maybe other provinces will have joined you. Well, I know it's been a conversation across the country for a long, long time. So perhaps my suspicion is that, like any jurisdiction that brings on the, this on board, the commitment to do so will be followed by one or two years of work before it goes in place. Because if you don't do the groundwork, Mm -hmm. the law is just words on a piece of paper. You really need to have education and support for the the community at large. So if BC, for example, were to go this way, they would, they'd have to put the time in as well. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with this. Dr. Bede, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Appreciate that. That's Dr. Stephen Bede, the medical director for Nova Scotia's organ donation program. It is a problem that continues to plague Surrey, the issue of gun violence and what to do about it. Now, we've been talking about it for years, and it was definitely a huge issue in last fall's municipal elections. So it's kind of disheartening to hear even the mayor himself say that he is worried about it. Those are some of the latest comments from Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Simi. And everybody knows the violence that's been going on out here in Surrey the last little while. Uh, Three shootings in three days this past week. So I thought I'd call the mayor and see what he had to say about it all. 
And uh, what he had to say was not at all what I was expecting to hear from Doug McCallum. I thought he'd be reaching out to try to calm the fears of people in Surrey, reassure people. But what he had to say was rather surprising. And here, Simi, is some of what he did have to say about an hour ago to me. Well, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm actually scared, too. You know, the, the, the recent series, I guess, of the violence and tragic events um, that have occurred in Surrey have been very unnerving um, in our communities, and I feel with our communities are, are feeling very unsafe. Uh, and, and I have a, a real frustration and, 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 and a, a concern um, just like any other citizen in Surrey. And, and I can tell you that I lose sleep at night trying to figure out how we can uh, grapple with this um, issue in Surrey. Um, I used to sleep very real well every night, but um, in the last uh, number of weeks I, um, I, I've had very restless uh, um, nights because I, I feel concerned also. And I think what we need to do, um, and, and the province helped us a little bit um, yesterday um, in bringing forward this Community Safety um, Act that was announced. Um, and I, I think that we need to be a lot more proactive um, in Surrey on this um, gun violence and, and gang activity. and. I mean, we do some of it now, but I think we, we need to be a lot more aggress uh, aggressive in proact proactive activities and getting out in front of this um, gang activity. And um, um, I think um, the Community Safety Act that the province brought in yesterday is going to help us greatly, and, and that's where we can go after some um, nuisance properties um, and so forth that, <coughs> excuse me, that many of the gang members hang out in and so forth and um, will give us the ability um, to shut those down and, and, and get out in front of it so that, um, 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 that this type of activity, uh, we can get it stopped. And, and things also like bar watch needs to be pushed a lot more. Um, we already do some things with um, federal money that have come in for... Um, working in the community to prevent people from um, um, joining gangs. And, and that's going well because we've already received the money and we've given it to our organizations that are working in our community now. And so on all those fronts, we need to be a lot more aggressive, though, I think, and, and um, really try to get out in front of it um, so we can stop it. I'm surprised uh, your comments off the top saying you two were, I, I forget the word, scared or afraid. Well, it's upsetting what's happened in our community. I mean, um, you know, our, our community is is feeling unsafe, and um, and you know, I'm as frustrated as anybody else in the community that this type of violence is is going on. And so, Janet, I'm I'm surprised also to hear Doug McCallum say that because that's not often what you hear someone say when they're talking about violence in the community. When you when you hear the mayor of a large Canadian city say that he is, quote, scared because of the violence that's been happening in his community, that really set me back, I have to say. It set me back on my heels big time, Simi. As I say, I thought he was going to try and calm everybody's fears, uh, try and let everybody know the city's on top of it, they're doing what they can. But for the mayor to say that he was scared, I mean, he certainly wasn't sugarcoating any comments today, that's for no. sure. 
um, you know, and, and the next question is, well, well, what are you doing about it, Mr. Mayor? Yeah. What is what are the police doing about it? And, um, you know, he, he touched on some things, the Bar Watch program that has been enhanced in the city of Surrey, federal money for local anti-gang programs. That's all happening, has been happening for some time. But, you know, this past week, we're seeing a, a stepped up increase in the violence, in the shootings. And as he says, he's correct. People are afraid in the city yeah. of Surrey. People are afraid. And I guess the other question is, would more police officers make a difference? More boots on the ground that we always hear about. Would, would that make a difference in the city? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But um, I, I would suggest that mm. more officers may make a city feel unwelcome to gangsters. I don't know. Would it stop the shootings? I don't know. Would it stop the violence? I don't know. Hopefully it would, but yeah. you know, uh, there's lots of, lots of questions to me. No kidding. Yeah, exactly. Has Surrey or SMB had anything to say about this? Not yet. I have uh, sent them my story. I have sent them the mayor's comments. So hopefully they will come out and say something this afternoon. I've also reached out to some city councillors to see if they would also like to offer up any comment on this. Um, sure, a lot of uh, chatter on Twitter when I put the story on Twitter this morning. Uh, people talking about, hey, we do need more boots on the ground. Yeah. Um, they feel that that will make make an improvement somewhat anyways. But, but, but Janet, yeah. don't we know that that's actually not going to happen? They voted against adding officers while they're transitioning, and the transition is going to take two years. So you're looking at three to four years before Surrey gets more police officers. Absolutely, Simi. I mean, there's really no point in asking the mayor if he's going to be adding more officers because he's already said and council's already voted not to add the 12 officers that they were planning to add la uh, vote on last year to add this year. No more police officers in the city of Surrey until they make the transition over to a community police force. And we know that that's going to take roughly two years, according to the mayor. So you're right. Yeah, uh, we may not have more officers for another two to three years. But at the same time, how, how much is the population growing in the city of Surrey? Yeah. By about 14,000 or so every year. So uh, it, it just seems at, at glance at those numbers, the uh, police numbers are not keeping up with the population. And at yeah. some point, uh, we fall so catch up. And that's what some police are saying. Does there come a point where Surrey is so far behind in the number of police officers that it has that it's difficult to ever catch up to the population growth? Those are all good questions. Listen, Janet, thank you. Thank you, Simi. That is uh, Global News Senior Reporter Janet Brown on the latest from Surrey. How do you feel about your young child playing tackle football? Well, that is a question that parents all over North America have increasingly been struggling with in the last 10 years or so. That's because we've learned more and more about the dangers of concussions and the long-lasting impacts that they could have. There was a study published in the journal Pediatrics, and it showed that of the more than 1,000 parents that they had surveyed, 60% of those parents said they were in favor of age limits in youth football. Now, Sarah Chrisman is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine, and she was the lead author on this study, and she spoke with UW about the results. We were asking parents about uh, various different policies that, that have been um, uh, sort of thought about as ways of making sports safer, one of which is limiting high-risk contact like tackling to older youth. 
and about 60% were in support of those kinds of age limits. As an organization, the American Academy of Pediatrics makes statements about um, different sports and sports safety and how things can be safer. And I, I think this adds to that uh, discussion that parents also are in support of some ways of mitigating risk in, in youth sports. All right, so that is Sarah Chrisman, who's the Assistant Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And the researchers also found that parents who were female, college-educated, they had a greater perceived risk for concussion, and they were the most likely to actually support age restrictions. Overall, there was an estimated 63% of mothers and 58% of fathers who supported a minimum age for tackling in football, and overall, it was 61% of all parents. And on top of that, 24% of parents would maybe support a minimum age for tackling in youth football. Only 15% or so were opposed to that. Meanwhile, in a statement yesterday, the CFL commissioner, uh, Randy Ambrosi, announced that Football Canada plans to phase out tackle football for youth players. Football Canada is also working to ensure that kids engage in full contact at appropriate ages. By January 2022, it plans to mandate that no 12-person tackle football can be played by anyone under the age of 12. Already it is prescribed there should be no tackle football played by anyone under the age of 8. While we enthusiastically support tackle football for older age groups, we are putting a huge emphasis on flag football for young girls and boys. All right, so to talk more about this, we're joined now by Dr. Chris Nowinski, who's CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation and author of Head Games, The Global Concussion Crisis. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What did you think about this, the announcement of age limits for youth football in Canada? I think it's great. Uh, We actually launched a campaign called Flag Football Under 14 to recommend to parents that they play alternative versions of non-tackle football uh, until high school. Um, It's wonderful that that the Football Canada is no longer having tackle before eight. Uh, They're still going to allow six on six and nine on nine tackle, so it's uh, until 12, which I don't necessarily support. But we're we're taking steps in the right direction. It's good to have a conversation. Is there a safe age, Dr. Nowinski, for children to start playing tackle football or no? Well, the question is, is there a safe age for children to get hit in the head, you know, a few hundred times every fall? And the answer is, that, you know, there's no great age to be exposed to that, but you're definitely much, much better off uh, getting hit in the head after your brain has gone through some development when you're a little older, when you're able to understand brain injuries, when you have uh, athletic trainers and other people there to uh, protect you and you have better trained coaches. So, a later start is generally a safer start for something like tackle football. Is this, do you think, becoming inevitable with all of the concerns over concussions? Well, it's not really concussions that, the, that, that singles football out. It's the repetitive brain trauma that's been associated with neurodegenerative diseases like chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE. Lots of sports have concussions, but football is one of the few where you get hit in the head you know, 10, 20 times a day in the games and practices. So that's really where the conversation should be. Okay, so then what about, is that happening in the United States as well? Is there a growing awareness of this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the demographics of who, who's playing and, and uh, is rapidly changing, and there's discussion of legislation to ban youth tackle football in six states, uh, ban it before age 12 in most cases. I mean, I think we're recognizing that, you know, football can be a great sport, um, but it, it's the appropriate age to because it's a dangerous sport. I'm actually talking at the NFL Players Association uh, 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 Health and Safety Committee. I'm right outside the room right now. 
I mean, this is a dangerous sport, and so we just have to decide if it's uh, what's right for kids when they're young and developing. Yeah, like, are parents making that decision? Are they not signing their kids up? Are we seeing fewer kids, do you think, sign up for tackle football? Yes. That's what the data says. Is we're seeing fewer kids at the younger ages signing up. But high school is only down 5% in the last decade in the United States. There's high school football is still thriving. But at the youngest ages, we're seeing a conversion to flag, uh, which we think will be best for the game for long-term health. And how, you said you're outside the NFL there, just about to go in and talk to them. Uh, is the NFL having recognition about this? Are they going through a period of adjustment? Oh, no question. I mean, we, we're watching, talking about all, all the many rule changes have been made and all the things we're going to focus on going forward. And, you know, uh, it, it, it's a wonderful time to watch the game being reformed in front of our very eyes. Uh, it's remaining as entertaining as ever, but it's becoming safer for the players, and that's important. And Dr. Winsky, what do we know about what happens to our brain when you let children play tackle football? So the, the, the latest study uh, on this out of Boston University talked about that you, you may be impacting brain development and brain resilience to disease when, when they're older. And looking at the brains of 246 uh, football players who passed away, those who started younger had earlier onsets of symptoms and issues like memory issues and other things. Um, so just the idea that we all know our, our, our child's brain is developing rapidly as they're learning every day and changing every day. And uh, you know, let, let that go on longer before they're exposed to dangerous activities. All right. Well, listen, Dr. Nowinski, thank you so much for your time on this. All right. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Okay. That's Dr. Chris Nowinski, who's the CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. I was just taking a quick look at gas prices, at least around the city of Vancouver anyway, and it looks like the average price out there at most places is $1.62.9. That is unbelievably high. And we know that we're sitting at a record high, likely to go up a couple of more cents, right, in the next couple of days. And now we're hearing that the provincial government says that they might do something about this. But really, what can they do? Premier John Horgan said yesterday that his government is going to potentially look for ways to reduce gas prices if they continue to go up. But when he kept getting asked about, listen, why is this happening? Why are the gas prices so high? He said, hey, don't point a finger at us. We'll see how it goes through the summer. And if there's an opportunity uh, to uh, have the province step in and help, we'll do that. But uh, at this point, I'm hopeful that uh, there will be some correlation between the commodity price and the retail price. Uh, Those are issues that are market-driven and out of my control. That's what he said, out of their control on that one. He also made the note that his government had driven up prices by two cents over the past 18 months. And he says the rest of the markup is essentially blamed on the market. So what, if anything, can the government actually do to bring down gas prices? And I know this is a popular idea. We all like that idea that there's some kind of mechanism that the government can suddenly do. You'd say, hey, tell them to take some of the tax off. Okay, but then that's a hit to the revenue that the province takes in. And guess what? They're going to take that money somewhere else. So what realistically can they do? That's a question that we have. Stuart Press joins us now, political scientist at Simon Fraser University. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Simon. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Excellent. Thank you. So um, hearing these comments from the Premier yesterday, I was wondering what possibly the government could do. Is there something that the government could do about gas prices? Well, I mean, there is a certain amount of, uh, I guess, relief they could provide from uh, t- the tax portion of the price, although that forms a, a minority of the overall cost of gas. So the uh, 
the, sort of the basic wholesale price of gas in the, in the region is just about a dollar a liter. And so, right, just the, the cost of getting the gas to the lower mainland uh, is is significant. And it's higher than elsewhere in the uh, the country, too. So it's um, something particular about the, the lower mainland market, it seems. Yeah. So what is that? So if the government were to say, oh, yeah, we'll temporarily take these taxes off, wouldn't that be a big hit to revenue? Yeah, it would be a big hit uh, to revenue. And, and so that money... Most of it is is going to to do specific things. So there's a, a tax related to to uh, TransLink, but then of course that helps provide for the the bus services in Lower Mainland. There's a uh, another uh, dedicated tax that uh, helps uh, maintain uh, provincial highways, and so that money would have to come from from somewhere else as well. And then of course there's the carbon tax, but that is also doing something, and that is trying to uh, change uh, uh, behaviors in in uh, BC so that people start to make different choices with regard to um, uh, transportation and so on. So in a sense, that tax, by being there, is doing what it's designed to do, which is to make people think about different uh, choices. Now, Stuart, does pressure often come up to governments when gas prices go up? Like, do, do we often look to governments to say, do something? Well, I think so. It's um, it's it's clearly we we know and every everyone is aware that uh, tax is a portion of that uh, that price. And when we compare the situation, say in Canada to the United States, we see that there is a, a disparity. In Canada, we pay uh, a larger share uh, of uh, tax on on every liter of gas than they do south of the border. And so there is, I think, an, uh, sort of knee jerk reaction whenever we see this sort of sticker shock uh, price jump, uh, then there is this in, intrinsic desire to, to turn to the government and say, well, do something about it. Because, yeah. of course, whenever you're on a, a, sort of a, a fixed income and you need to uh, make a choice uh, about how much, whether you're going to get more gas or, or make another choice, there's only so, many, so much flexibility in people's lives. So we're looking for, for immediate relief. So are, are we paying more taxes on our gas than elsewhere in Canada? Uh, we are. Uh, the um, the amount here is uh, maybe. I, mean, I was just looking at the numbers, Stan. It's uh, maybe uh, somewhere between five and ten cents more than the uh, the national average. So there is uh, a slight increase, and that makes uh, some sense. And we have. Um, uh, a carbon tax that uh, is just coming online in the rest of Canada. So that gap may actually start to close as we see uh, the carbon tax come online in, in the rest of the country. But those same sorts of, of demands are on every government. So there are revenues going from the, the gasoline tax to pay for uh, things related to transport in different ways. But uh, we do pay a little bit more in BC, that's true. Right. So whenever gas prices do go up, then, then people obviously want to get angry at somebody. Do you think that's kind of what's at play here? Uh, I, I certainly think it is. Uh, there's a, a desire, when, when, especially whenever you have a, a new record-breaking crisis. Well, this is unprecedented. Unprecedented, perhaps it's a crisis that requires a response, but it is um, at the same time. It's uh, Premier Horgan's not wrong in saying that this is a function of of the market. There is a, in the Lower Mainland, we do occasionally have a, a limited supplies of gas, and if there's a little bit of uh, an interruption, that uh, bumps the price up. And uh, and so that is just a, a market correction. It's forcing uh, the people buying gas to make uh, different choices again. And so we're uh, essentially asking the government to to counteract those those market forces or 
to scrimp on something else like funding for transit. And uh, it's not clear that that's an easy thing to do when we have all these other priorities, including that sort of background important consideration. British Columbians are concerned about climate change and are uh, looking for our governments to do something in the long term. It's just it becomes suddenly quite uncomfortable when the long term becomes uh, action right now and we see the effect on our bottom line. Right. And is that a bit of a political trap then for politicians, right? Is it they're always going to be asked to do something and telling people that it's out of our hands. I don't know how long people are going to put up with that. Well, that's true. And and so we have we end up with this sort of tension between the urgent and the important, right? It's uh, important that we do something about climate change. And so British Columbians, they've expressed that they are concerned about uh, climate uh, consistently in polls, but it is urgent that we do something about uh, gas prices right now. And in politics, uh, that the urgent often wins out over over the important. So, I mean, I would not be surprised if we do see uh, if prices continue to be uh, record-setting, if uh, Premier Horgan uh, would uh, take a, some action. Uh, it's, it's limited how much he can do because much of this money is, is earmarked for one thing or another, but might take some action because he's, he has communicated in the past through choices, say, around uh, liquid natural gas um, tax subsidies that he is willing to take on board concerns about uh, short-term economic considerations and, and, and even in long-term. Uh, and if that means doing a little less on climate action, then he seems to be willing to live with that. that kind of opens up a Pandora's box, though, doesn't it, Stuart? Like if a, if you have a politician who says, yeah, okay, I'll help you out with gas prices, does something, doesn't that put the pressure on any future you know, premier and other politicians say, hey, he did it, why can't you do it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it certainly does. Uh, this is one of the, uh, the. I mean, guess what is it? It's a difficulty of living in a democracy because uh, uh, Horgan is responding to demands. He wants to win the next election, and so he's going to occasionally take the uh, the uh, politically expedient shortcut, even if it's uh, not what in the long term interests of of the province, of the country, of the world. And he's not being elected by the world; he's being elected by British Columbians. He, he may make that expedient choice, and we just. Uh, sometimes don't end up with the, the best long-term policy decisions as a result. That's just part of the deal of being a, a, a popularly elected a democracy. That is very well put, by the way, <laughs> with get, trying to explain how it is that we end up with what we end up with. So, Stuart, if you had to make a prediction here, do you think the government will actually try to do something? I think they're going to try to stay out of it as long as they can and sort of cross their fingers and hope some of the, uh, I'm not an expert on, on gas supply, but they're going to hope that some of those issues work themselves out and the price uh, comes back down to earth a little bit. But if it does not, and they start to see that there's a building resentment and that people are, are, are clamoring for action, then they probably will take at least some short-term action. And they may try to build it in such a way that it is um, seen as a one-off, so they're not setting that precedent, that trap, as you described it, uh, so that the next time uh, prices uh, bump up a bit, they have to do the same thing, because that that can completely undermine the uh, the long-term ability to, to manage uh, tax burden on gas and, and to do things like uh, maintain an increasing carbon tax regime. Exactly. All right. Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime.
That is Stuart Prest, who's a political scientist at Simon Fraser University. We're talking about the political pitfalls of making potential promises for doing something about gas prices. All right, today we're not going to have any losers. Today is all about the winners because we have two of them for you. Love it when that happens. One of our winners is Liz Smith. I can't tell you how much I love this story. Uh, She's a nurse from Massachusetts, and she says her life changed after she adopted a baby girl who was abandoned at birth, and the baby was addicted to drugs at birth as well. So she's the director of nursing at Franciscan Children's Hospital in Massachusetts. She'd always wanted to be a mom, uh, but it just never worked out. She wasn't able to have kids of her own. And so she kind of pushed that idea to the back of her mind until she met this baby in the hospital who would eventually become her daughter. Have a listen to this report from NBC News. Hi, everyone. Elizabeth Smith is fulfilling her lifelong dream as the director of nursing at Franciscan Children's Hospital in Boston. Since I was a little girl, I always always wanted to be a nurse. I actually graduated from the Hasbro Play School of Nursing when I was six and my mom presented me with a diploma. Liz also dreamed of being a mom, but her career came first. It just seemed natural that I would go to college, get my nursing degree, meet a guy, get married and have children. Becoming a nurse was easy, but becoming a mom was not. As she approached 40, Liz's sister encouraged her to try to have kids on her own. She said, I'll be right by your side. We went to see an infertility specialist. She was very positive, said, you're healthy. You have the ovaries of a 30-year-old. This is going to be good. Until one day, I was in my boss's office, and the phone rang, and it was the nurse. And she said, "It's I'm so sorry, Liz. It's not good. After trying unsuccessfully on several attempts, Liz put being a mom behind her until one fateful day. I put it in the back of my mind, got busy with work as I always do. I was came out of the medical unit one day and in the stroller was this beautiful little girl. And I said to the nurse, Megan, who is this beautiful little angel? And she said, this is Giselle. And that was it. It was love at first sight. And despite Giselle's challenges, Liz immediately volunteered to become her foster mom. When I took Giselle home to foster her, she was getting fed through her G-tube about 16 hours a day. So that was a few months uh, into the fall and I couldn't love her 70%, you know, until I knew the adoption was gonna be final. I was already bonded with her before we left the hospital. Her expertise made Liz uniquely qualified to care for Giselle and the perfect person to become her mom. Thank you. On October 18, 2018, Liz officially became Giselle's adoptive mother. The experience of being a mom is like nothing I could have imagined. Every day there's something different about Giselle and it's just an experience that you can't even describe. The story is so sweet. Very nice. And I guess uh, nobody had come to visit the baby in the hospital for like days. And so she really, she said, how come nobody's coming to visit this baby? And when she inquired, it turned out the baby needed foster care. And oh, oh boy, the pictures in that story will just make you weepy on this Friday afternoon. Aww. We have another winner too. Our other winner is New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Wait till you hear this story. She came to the aid of an exhausted mom who realized that she had forgotten her wallet while at the checkout at the grocery store. Has that ever happened to you? No, thank goodness. Right? Especially at the end of a long day. (laughs) This lady, this mother of two, was shopping for groceries at a supermarket in Auckland when she realized that she didn't have her wallet on her. 
just happened to be in the lineup behind her was the prime minister. Come on. I'm not even kidding you. And so this mom, this unidentified mother actually wrote on Facebook, just when you think Jacinda Ardern couldn't get any more lovely, low-key and authentic, she goes and pays for your groceries at the supermarket because you've got your shopping, have two kids with you and are about to put it all back because you forgot your wallet. Uh, The prime minister actually confirmed the reports when she was speaking to a reporter at an event in New Zealand. A Facebook post has been seen that you paid for some groceries for a mother and her children because she forgot her wallet. Um, Is that true? Yes. Why did you do that? Because she was a mum. Okay, thanks everyone. Oh man, do I ever feel for her, yes. Well, good for her. So she's not looking for any publicity. Look at how great I am. She doesn't even want to talk about it. That's really the sign when someone's doing a good deed and doesn't want to get any thanks back for it. No kidding. I'm just impressed that that other lady had both of her kids with her at the supermarket. When they're little, I used to take my, this youngest one to the grocery store with me and I'm just going to give the shout out to the people at the Ladner Safeway for all the years I was, you know, taking him when he was just a toddler or a baby even before that, because he had this tendency to lean out of the buggy a lot and pull things off the shelves and break them. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure they got to the point whenever it was like clean up on aisle three, they knew that I was in the store because like he broke a ketchup bottle, he broke a bottle of mustard once. And it was like, there's always something that he broke. probably thought it was great fun as well. And they were so lovely to me. So I've never forgotten that.